Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Good morning, Desi. Good morning. It's a morning show. Yeah, it's, it's a different vibe when it's a morning show. Um, so I'm going to start off by thanking the people who subscribe to our Patreon. They can, they did, but you can also <laughs> go to patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene and subscribe and get some perks. Uh, in addition to supporting the show, you get bonus content, you get access to the Discord, you get ad-free episodes. There's lots of stuff, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you I agree? I think it's worth it. <laughs> um, so this past week, we had Anna, Elf, Natasha, Krista, Nayara, Paulina, Ares, Brian, Anastasia, Britt, Casey, Mia, Lauren, um, Meyer Shanker, Cami, Stephanie, Jordan, Wendy, Johnny, Alyssa, Olivia, David, Waterlily, Miss Harmony, Faye, and Shelby. Thank you all very much. Thank you guys. This episode will be a two-parter. It's a story I have wanted to do for a very long time, and I finally got around to it. It is the story of L. Ewing Scott and the Landmark Case. Is it called the Landmark Case? No. This, oh. this, was, <laughs> this I was going to add something to the end of that. <laughs> this, this was a... This case... The, the trial of this guy, it was a landmark case. Okay. In Los Angeles. So, so the trial, the person on trial is Al Ewing. Scott. Scott. Okay. You know how people in the olden days, they always went by their initials? Of course. Esquire. Especially, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they always like had initials. Um, at least the guys did. Now, my main source for this book is the book Corpus Delecti. By Diane Wagner. Look, I don't know Latin. Is it corpus delecti or delecti? I always say delecti. I would say delecti oh. just because like fungi. That's but a good point. I don't know. I don't know either it's, technically. Because in my head, I've always said delecti. And then as soon as I was writing this episode, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get an email a Latin scholar who's going to be yeah. fucking furious with we have me. numerous Latin scholars, <laughs> I'm sure. But we do get corrections on pronunciation. Yeah. I'm guessing delecti. That's what, that would be how I say it, probably. I'm sure a lawyer, if <laughs> as if like serious lawyers listen to our show. Maybe. They like to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> they like to suspend their disbelief. Like, oh, they tried. It's a fun, it's a fun lawyer. They tried explaining that. Yeah. Anyway... Corpus Delecti slash Delecti. I'm just making this more confusing. Yeah, let's but, just get into it. By Diane Wagner. 
great, that's the important name. Great book. Book I've had also had. <laughs> I got bought this book like five years ago. We're finally getting around mm-hmm. to it. Nice. Anyway, our story begins. It was August 2nd, 1955, when 58-year-old L. Ewing Scott met with chief investigator Chick Ebbets to discuss the details of his wife's disappearance. Scott told him he last saw his 63-year-old wife on May 16th when she left their Bel Air home to pick up a special brand of toothpaste at a store in Westwood. She never came back, he said. Evelyn, said Scott, had been on the decline for months. She was an alcoholic with cancer. Mm. He showed investigator Ebbets the liquor cabinet in their home. He also said that when she left, she was carrying $18,000 worth of cash on her. Wow. For toothpaste? (laughs) Just to go get toothpaste at the store. Hmm. And she was a drunk, so maybe she thought she was carrying 18 cents. We don't know. That's how much toothpaste costs. (laughs) A team of five Los Angeles detectives have been quietly looking into the disappearance of Evelyn Scott for two weeks now. They had spoken to several of Evelyn's worried friends who had been trying with no avail to reach their friend. It wasn't like her to just disappear like this. Following the the interview with her husband, Ewing Scott, investigators learned that there had been activity at her bank after her disappearance. Hmm. Scott had gained entry into her safe deposit box with a signed co-renters agreement and had also deposited traveler's checks signed by Evelyn at the Bank of Los Angeles. As investigators dug into the Scott's financial history, Mr. Scott was seemingly unbothered, and he was dating a new woman, (gasps) a wealthy widow named Harriet. He told her, my alcoholic wife left me. She sent me to run an errand, and then she was gone when I came home. She had $18,000 on her. When he told her, I think, then he told her, I also think she has a girlfriend on the, on the side. He was like, I know my wife, Evelyn, and she's a lesbian. Whoa. Evelyn Scott was born Evelyn Throsby on May 11th, 1892 in New York City. She had a middle-class upbringing and had worked since since she was a teenager. She came into a great deal of wealth at the age of 24 when she married her first husband, a stockbroker and coal heir from Staten Island named Walter. The marriage ended nearly two years later due to Walter's alcoholism. Her second husband was a surgeon from New York. He was also an alcoholic, and that marriage ended after seven years. Two years later, a new man asked for Evelyn's hand in marriage. Mm. His name was Clement Pettit. He was also very wealthy, though not an alcoholic. Hmm. She's breaking old habits. (laughs) Breaking the cycle of alcoholic husbands. But he's still wealthy. Yes. Evelyn hesitated on getting married for a third time, but 16 months after her proposal, they were married. Pettit came from old money. He was part of a Milwaukee banking family. He adored her and set her up financially, giving her a majority stake in a Milwaukee apartment complex. He also gave her stocks and bonds. In 1932, the couple relocated to Los Angeles as Pettit's health was worsening and LA's temperate climate was thought to improve his health. That's something everyone did back then. 
Right. You move to a dry climate. Or a warm climate yeah. for your health. Mm. They moved to Pasadena, home to LA's old money. They became close friends with their wealthy neighbors, including Los Angeles attorney Bill Bronner and his wife Gertrude. Evelyn's younger brother Raymond was also living in Los Angeles. He had a government job as a safety engineer, but suffered his own health problems. His brother-in-law, Clement Pettit, paid for his stay at a sanatorium. So this guy was very generous with his money. He not only set up his wife with a stock portfolio, yeah, but he's paying for her brother's hospital stays. Yes, Evelyn was also generous with her money. She often sent checks and clothing along with weekly letters to her friend Marguerite back in New York. In 1944, Evelyn's husband Clement Pettit died. (gasps) Evelyn had a host of close-knit friends to rally around her after his death. Two years later, Evelyn married her fourth husband, Norris Mumper. (gasps) He gasped. <gasps> Norris Mumper. Norris, the Norris Mumper? <laughs> the Norris Mumper. I guess because I can't believe she got married and it wasn't the guy we're talking about. <laughs> like, oh no. She's gotten married so many times. People did that. It's also like I, I was thinking, like, once you marry a rich guy, then you just only marry rich guys. You're in that circle at that point, right? She's fully, at this point, Evelyn is fully immersed in Pasadena society. Yes. Like old old money. Because you have to understand at this time in Los Angeles, all the like hoity-toity old money people, like the old money wasps, they all lived in Pasadena and it was the new money that moved west, like to Beverly Hills and right. Bel Air. And, and if you go to Pasadena, you can tell. Yeah. Because they have a lot of huge mansions there that are not like, that are nice. But they're also old. Yeah. Like they're some of the older houses in LA. And and even next door to Pasadena is a town called San Marino and they have some of the most gorgeous like old school Richie mansions. Really? Like it's crazy. I was like, I I didn't even know, but I went there one time and was walking around and I was like, oh my God, like what is this place? Right. It it seems like East Coasty kind of uh, just the way it's so rich. I don't know. Um, so she's like fully immersed in this society. So you're right. She's only ever meeting other rich dudes. Yeah. And they're just getting married. She wanted that last name. Mumpus. Mumper. (laughs) Mumper. Mumpus. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It's Mumper. He was a retired engineer at the U.S. State Department. Norris moved into Evelyn's Pasadena home, and they even built a second house on their property for his son and daughter-in-law to live in. That's how big their property was. Yeah, let's just build another mansion there. Yeah. (laughs) Norris Mumper suffered a heart attack soon after and died. What? Yes. Evelyn was devastated, but she was taken care of by friends and family once again. She maintained a close relationship with her late husband's siblings and children. Evelyn was smart with her money. She had hired a broker to assist her with her considerable stock portfolio. And following her husband's death, she hired a full-time personal assistant named Olive. Evelyn had the means to pay Olive even when she was away on extended vacations in Hawaii and South America. 
Her stocks and her interest in the apartment complex in Milwaukee had set Evelyn up for the rest of her life. She spent much of her time doing what wealthy Los Angeles society fixtures did, attending charity galas, shopping in Beverly Hills, and attending dinner parties at her wealthy friends' houses. It was at a dinner party in 1949 where she met L. Ewing Scott. Scott was four years younger than Evelyn. He was born September 27, 1896 in St. Louis, Missouri. His father was an alcoholic who chased the dream of striking it rich with oil, but he never did. His mother was a devout Catholic. He left home for Chicago at the age of 19 where he got a job and attended some school for business, but he never got his degree. Around this time, he lost his virginity to a sex worker. After the death of his father, Scott moved back home to St. Louis to live with his mother. He got a job at a stock brokerage as a bookkeeper. The finance guys inspired him. Mm. Ewing Scott really wanted to be a finance bro. Red flag. Total red flag. <laughs> he, um, he loved the way these guys dressed. He liked the way they talked. He, wanted, he desperately wanted to be them. He was willing to do anything except go to business school to get his degree. Hmm. Like he did some business school. I mean, I get that. I respect someone who wants it but doesn't want to do the hard work to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that wasn't a problem for him. Scott learned how to play the part. Hmm. He conducted his own study into the lifestyle of a broker and eventually got a promotion as a stock salesman. He focused on networking, joining just about every club and organization he could in town. He's like, I'm going to join everything. I'm going to get one of those blue shirts with the white collars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that they all wear. Yeah. Yeah. He like, he did the, he played the part, right? He right. faked it till he made it. He literally faked it till he made it. And he joined every single club in town just for the purpose of like meeting people. Nice. He joined the athletic club. He joined the Freemasons. Whoa. He joined the Presbyterian church. Mm. He's like, I don't care if it's <laughs> I don't believe in God. I'm just here to network. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was that guy. Like, imagine Ewing Scott's Instagram today. Oh, yeah. He'd be at all the hot restaurants with mediocre food. He'd be the type of person who needs to always take pictures with everyone. Yes. And post it. Yeah. Yeah. Look at me. I'm with, what's that guy's name? Tony Robbins. Like, yeah. they're friends or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he'd have, like, um, dream big. Yeah. He'd always do a lot of hashtags. Live, in, <laughs> live your dreams. What's the other one? Grind set. Grind set. He's a, you got to hustle. You gotta hustle. <laughs> My side hustle. <laughs> Buying and selling bonds. <laughs> he even attempted to start his own firm, but the business quickly failed. Probably because he had no real <laughs> business. That was that was where things got tougher. It's one thing to go to church. <laughs> But when he tried to start his own brokerage, yeah. he realized he's like, this is hard. Yeah. You have to go to school and do something like this. <laughs> he had only one potential client, a guy named Perry, who he would later attempt to go into a business with. That business also failed. Mm. Perry, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Scott then moved to Los Angeles, where he would meet and marry his first wife, Alva, in 1937. She came from money. She was a mining heiress whose father owned a publishing house. 
Her status allowed Scott to join the Jonathan Club. Oh, that's downtown, right? Yes. It's an exclusive men's club where he was able to rub elbows with some of the most powerful and successful men in L.A. Now, Scott heavily embellished his own accomplishments Hmm. and business dealings when he would socialize with these men. So Scott desperately wanted to be a part of this hoity-toity Jonathan Club crowd. Mm. And he was hanging on by a thread just based on the fact that he was married to this heiress. Right. So they're like, oh, it's it's Elvis' husband. We can be a little nice. There he comes. He's full of shit. (laughs) They all knew he was full of shit. Yeah. Behind the scenes, Scott was a shitty, abusive husband. And after five years of marriage, Alva's father paid him a settlement to divorce his daughter. Like, he paid him off. So the daughter would have stayed, it seems. Possibly. Yeah. And the dad was like, please. Just leave her. Leave my daughter. Yeah. We don't like you. Following the divorce, Scott left Los Angeles for D.C. He told acquaintances that he was working a very important, top-secret government job. Hmm. We've heard this before. I was going to say, sounds true. This is still a con that persists today. If you watch Dateline, if, if there's a scamming husband who's like a, a bluebeard killer yes. type, he, he's always, they're always like, oh, I also work for the CIA. I can't tell you about it. I can't it, tell you about it. But I will be traveling a lot. <laughs> I can't tell you why or where. Doing top secret government stuff, a.k.a. killing women across the country. Or, yeah, with my secret families. Yes. (laughs) That I have everywhere. (laughs) Right. This is a classic move. We've talked about this in other cases we've covered. The top secret government job. But in truth, Scott was working an entry-level desk job, of which he was quickly let go of. Mm. So he did work in D.C., but he was a clerk. His employer cited his lack of cooperation and his antagonizing of his coworkers. Oh. People at work didn't like him. He was a dick to people. Yeah. I could picture the type. Yeah. Just kind of always sarcastic and like <laughs> mocking everyone. We don't like this guy's jokes, boss. Yeah. He returned to LA where he tried and failed to get into land development, borrowing money from his mother and then neglecting to pay a construction supervisor. His next get-rich-quick scheme was radically different. He played the part of scientist, (laughs) inventing his own hair tonic to treat male baldness. Oh. He's like, I'm going to get into chemistry. I'm going to be a a quack. I'm (laughs) going to put one of those little ads. People loved tonics back then. They fucking love a tonic, especially for your hair. A hair tonic. And you get one of those drawing ads that are in the newspaper. Yes. Where it's all hand-drawn. Yes. Hair tonic. Hair tonic, 10 cents. For men. Pick it up at Schweiker's Pharmacy. It's like, what's that drugstore X, something with an EX, I think, that used to be back in the day. It's like an old one. I can't remember the name, but yeah. Get it at Schwab's Pharmacy. Schwab's. Get discovered. (laughs) So he, this, this male baldness tonic did not work. He even Hmm. like tried to conduct a study where he said he would pay... The, the guys, and then yeah. he never paid them for the study. Um, he was like, we're having a contest. If you, whose hair grows the most? No mm. one's hair grew at all. So no one won. Nobody, <laughs> so we didn't have to pay anyone. He then tried to concoct a pesticide 
he's like, well, I'm going to get into the, maybe that was where the hair tonic came in. He's like, well, this is great for killing trees. Right. It doesn't work on growing hair, hair but it does kill bugs. <laughs> <laughs> this project was a bust too. Oh boy. It wasn't until the, that summer of 1949 when he met the wealthy widow Evelyn Throsby at a mutual friend's dinner party that he knew that this was the kind of scheme that could really pay off. Mm. And that's where we will take a break. We'll be right back. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals, and during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th, Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Scott charmed Evelyn telling her over dinner about what a busy man he was working a top-secret government job. <laughs> Ooh. That got her horny. <laughs> a top-secret government job. Are you a spy? <laughs> <laughs> 
He hung on every word she said, being extra attentive to her. He was like the perfect dinner date. Yes. They next entered into a whirlwind romance. They spent so much time together that he proposed to her less than a month later. And she said yes. Wow. And they got married on September 3rd, 1949 in Mexico. They did a second ceremony a few weeks later in Nevada. Ewing Scott's next step was to begin the isolation process. He convinced Evelyn to sell her Pasadena home and purchase a new home for them in Bel Air, far away from her friends and family. Mm. The relationship rapidly worsened. According to the Scots' live-in housekeeper, Vera, she often heard them fighting. After one fight, Vera found Evelyn in the kitchen with a bruise on her cheek. (gasps) Evelyn said she fell. But the next day, Scott approached their housekeeper and told her, she didn't fall. I smacked her. That's uh, odd. (laughs) That is crazy. Yeah, like... He's not... Like, he's like, does not even give a fuck about hiding it. Yeah. And she's like covering for him. Right. Yeah. Vera also claimed that Scott outright told her that he only married Evelyn for her money. I'm sure he looked down on their housekeeper too and was like, who cares? No one believes her. No one would believe her anyway. Vera was let go of her housekeeping job at the Scots shortly after. She couldn't believe that Evelyn would have come to that decision to fire her with just no explanation. She's like, yeah. what, what's going on here? On her last day of work, Scott offered to drive Vera home, but instead he drove her to the side of, a, to the, side of the road in a deserted area and dropped her off. What? Like he told Evelyn, he's like, I'm going to take her home now. And then he just dumped her somewhere. That's so weird. Yeah. What's his deal? He can't help being a dick in every situation. I'm also like, where is isolated in LA? (laughs) Like he must have driven far. Well, it's also the early 50s. Right. So there's more sparse areas. Yeah. Scott convinced Evelyn to fire her personal assistant, Olive. He said he could handle all of her duties. Mm. He also said that he was capable of taking care of her financial affairs He had experience as a broker, after all. Yeah. He has several failed businesses. (laughs) He knew best. That's what he said. Evelyn didn't like this idea. She had been under the care of her trusted financial advisors for years and had steadily made passive income off of her investments. Eventually, Scott wore her down and convinced her to abandon them. He had a plan on what to do with her money. He urged her to liquidate all of her assets, telling her he was afraid of the stock market crashing. Hmm. This was a a genius plan that he boasted about carrying out at all their various social events. Like he would tell all these other actual stockbroker guys, he's like, guess what I'm doing to my wife's money? It's a very smart idea. And they're like, that's not a smart idea. I liquidated all our assets. All these these in these uh these uh stocks and and interests that have been netting her dividends steadily throughout right, the year. Right, she's like living off of that and keeping her money. Yeah, basically. Um but he's going around at parties basically mm. bragging about all of this. He's like this is smart. 
And by 1951, Scott was completely in charge of Evelyn's finances. The sale of her stocks now prevented her from earning those annual dividends that had been paying her so well every year. There was one account that, or maybe like it was in total, but like she was getting an $8,000 dividend just like per year from this stock she had invested in. And in today's money, that's like $99,000. Just from one. Just passive income. So is he just trying to get the money basically? Yeah, he wants it liquid. Yeah, so he can have it. Yeah. By this time, Evelyn didn't want to do anything to rock the boat in their marriage. So Mm. she just agreed when Scott insisted that her Milwaukee apartment building go under new management. Mm. He handpicked the firm. Scott spent Evelyn's money lavishly, taking trips overseas together and giving himself an allowance. (laughs) Evelyn's friends and family didn't like Ewing Scott very much, but none more than her brother Raymond. Raymond told Evelyn that he thought Scott was a fraud and he couldn't understand how she could let this guy have so much control over her. She disagreed and their relationship soured. Evelyn took note of Raymond's own financial troubles and mental health problems. She had bailed him out financially before to the tune of several thousand dollars. On one instance, Raymond threatened suicide if his sister didn't send him a check. Raymond, of course, was unable to pay these loans from his sister back. Evelyn pressed about repaying the loans, which angered Raymond, prompting him to send a nasty letter to her. They didn't speak for two years. And of course, her husband, Ewing Scott, was like, see, your brother doesn't know what he's talking about. Is this the one that was in the sanatorium? Yes. Okay. And he also used that. He's like, he was in a mental hospital. Okay. Of course, he doesn't like me. He's crazy. Yeah. Eventually, in 1954, Evelyn and her brother would make up. But they had two years of like not speaking to each other because he was like, your husband's a fraud. Do you think because she's older that she just wanted to be married or something? Her friends thought that. Yeah. Her girlfriends did at least. Uh, Oh, that's the next sentence. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Although Evelyn's girlfriends were initially skeptical of her getting married so soon, they chalked it up to her being lonely and they were forgiving of her choice. The husbands of her friends who knew business could smell the phoniness on Ewing Scott from a mile away. Yes. They're like, that guy's a fucking phony. Friend Bill Bronner, who is the Los Angeles attorney, he thought Scott's idea of liquidating Evelyn's assets was crazy. Um, And by the beginning of 1955, all of her assets were liquid. Mm -hmm. Like He had managed to liquidate all of them by that point. Then Scott had Evelyn deposit $100,000 across 10 different bank accounts in eight different states. Bill Bronner was alarmed one night at a dinner party when he noticed a bruise on Evelyn's face. He pulled her aside and told her, you know, you can always move back to Pasadena. And Evelyn's like, I can't. My husband wants us to live in Bel Air. Mm. Scott would talk privately with Evelyn's friends about the conditions that she suffered. He bemoaned her drinking problem and her failing health. Her friends had never known Evelyn to be much of a drinker, and they had never heard of her having any serious health problems. On Evelyn's 63rd birthday, Scott and her friends celebrated at the Beverly Hills Supper Club. 
Then a few days later on the 15th, Evelyn attended another birthday dinner party to celebrate with the friends who couldn't make the first one. The dinner party was at the home of longtime friends Arthur and Gladys Baum. That night, Evelyn told them of her and Scott's plans to travel Europe. She even mentioned her recent checkup at the doctor and the clean bill of health he had given her. That was the last night any of her friends saw her. On Monday, May 16th, Evelyn and Scott test drove a new Mercedes. They were considering buying a new car and having it shipped to Europe to tour around. The salesman, Ulrich Quast, was eager to make a sale that day. Scott liked the car, but was concerned about the shipping costs. Quast, the salesman, offered to put together an estimate before the Scots made a decision. He would contact them later in the week. The next day, Scott called Evelyn's beauty salon where she had a standing weekly appointment. It was around 8.30 a.m. when he told the receptionist that his wife would not be making it in that day, nor would she the following week or the week after that. He said, I want to cancel all of her future appointments. <laughs> that Thursday, Scott went to the First National Bank in Westwood, where he attempted to get into Evelyn's safe deposit box. He brought with him a signed co-renters agreement. But the bank teller balked, telling Scott that Evelyn would have to come into the bank in person to agree to let another person into her safe deposit box. Scott threw a fit. He's like, my wife is out of town. He's so suspicious. Everything he does is suspicious. And he starts yelling at this woman who's like the clerk. Mm -hmm. And he's like, how dare you? Yeah. He's making a scene. He's making such a scene that the teller has to call her boss over. So the manager, Bill Dawson, then gets yelled at by Scott. And he's like, don't you know we're a wealthy married couple. I need to get into my wife's safety deposit box. She's out of town. Mm. How dare you treat me like this? And he was rattling this guy so much that, and like waving this paper around. He's like, this is signed by her. She says I can get in here. That eventually this manager just acquiesced. Oh. And like was like, okay, okay. Fine. Get into the box. (laughs) Next, he went to another bank where he deposited the traveler's checks that Evelyn had gotten for their trip to Europe. He opened a new account at the Bank of Los Angeles under his name and deposited $600. Then he drove all the way to Van Nuys and opened an account at another bank. This was at the Bank of America, where he deposited $400. He opened this as a joint account under both his and Evelyn's names. Upon opening this account, he also ordered a rubber stamp with Evelyn's signature. (laughs) Meanwhile, Evelyn's friends had been trying to contact her with no avail. Scott was barely answering the phone, and he was trashing her letters, or sometimes he would just forward them to weird places. The only guy who seemed to be able to get through to the Scots was Ulrich Quast, the Mercedes salesman, who called to follow up on the purchase of the car. Scott told him his wife was sick and that they wouldn't be buying the car anymore. Evelyn's friend Jeanette McDonald did manage to get a hold of someone when she called the Scott residence. Scott told her friend that she wasn't home, but she'd call her back. 
Evelyn never did, of course, and so she tried calling several more times but never got an answer. This was also the case for Evelyn's friend Gladys, who called the Scott house and never got an answer. Same for friends Bill Bronner and his wife Gertrude. Nobody could get a hold of Evelyn. And because they were all mutual friends, they're all talking about it. Yeah. With each other. They're like, have you talked to her? No, I haven't seen her since her birthday party. Yeah. It's been a month. This is weird. She's a very social lady, too. Yes. Scott told their housekeeper, Camila, and their handyman, Frank, that Evelyn was on the East Coast at a treatment center for a vague illness. Hmm. And that she would be staying in a facility for an undetermined amount of time. He let the handyman go in June, telling him that he would be visiting his wife for a time and he wouldn't need his help around the house anymore. But Scott never left L.A. The only place it seemed that Scott planned on going was aboard a luxury cruise the following January. He spoke with his travel agent about booking a ticket just for him. My wife is sick. She won't be coming, he Hmm. said. Eventually, one of Evelyn's friends did get an answer out of Scott about her whereabouts. On June 16th at 7.45 a.m., Ewing Scott called Evelyn's friend Mildred and told her that she had been very sick and that he was taking her to a sanatorium on the East Coast. Mildred was shocked. She's like, I had no idea she was sick. We're very close. Yeah. She never told me. I know she has diverticulitis sometimes, like flare-ups. Right. But I didn't know she was sick enough to have to go to a sanatorium on the East Coast. And Scott was very vague about the details. And he told Mildred that, no, you can't speak to Evelyn on the phone. She's very sick. How sick was she? Well, Scott told Mildred that Evelyn was currently drunk and naked in their bathroom, rambling to herself. Wow. And Mildred's like, well, that doesn't sound like Evelyn. Yeah. At all. And if that's true, then obviously something's seriously wrong. She was more concerned than anything, but still really shocked. Right. An hour after they got off the phone, Mildred called the Scott residence again. She's like, I got to know more information. But no one picked up this time. That night, Scott called Gladys and told her the same thing that he had told Mildred. That evening... Evelyn, uh, he said that that Evelyn had been sick for a very long time and it had gotten bad enough that she would need to be put into a facility. Gladys asked if she could speak to Evelyn and Scott said no. Gladys asked for the location of the facility and Scott was like, well, it's either in New York or Baltimore. A week after her phone call with Scott, she dialed their, their residence. This time, a voice came over the line that said the number had been disconnected. Oh, shit. Weeks went by, and there was still no word from Evelyn or of her status. The whole friend group was wondering what to do. Opal Mumper, who's Evelyn's (laughs) sister-in-law from her marriage to Norris Mumper, she drove down there to Bel Air herself, and she's like, I need some answers. She went over there with mutual friend Maxine. So these two women go up to the door the front door, and they ring the doorbell. No one answers, but they're like, I bet he's home. So they're sneaking around the back of the house, these ladies, and they saw Scott through a window in the house. They're like, he's home. 
That's what I've been waiting for someone to do. It's like, just go there. They went there. Yeah. And Scott sees the women looking at him through the window (laughs) and their eyes meet and it's like chilling. Yeah. And they're really freaked out. So, but they go back around to the front and they're like, well, let's ring the doorbell again. We know he's home. Hi. (laughs) Just pretend we we didn't just see him. (laughs) (laughs) We saw that you're home, but he didn't come to the doorbell. Oh, shit. This guy's psychotic. They also need to stake him out and see where he goes. Because if he leaves the house, do you know what I mean? Like, right. they can break in. Now, following this incident, Opal got in touch with Evelyn's lawyer, Jim Boyle, and he began to look into the matter himself. Of course, when he called the Scott residence, he got the very same voice saying that the phone had been disconnected. He dropped by the house himself, but was never able to get Scott to come to the door. Finally, he decided to send a letter to the management company of the Milwaukee apartment building that she owned. He asked them if they had any information about the whereabouts of his client. Unfortunately for him, the company forwarded that letter to Scott. Oh, no. And Scott, of course, never got back to Jim Boyle. It's like, I'm trying to be shady. What are you doing? (laughs) I'm specifically not going to the husband. I'm going to the management company. idiots. (laughs) Dummy. When Ewing Scott's friends, Roy and Polly Wharton, asked about where his wife was at, he was like, she left me. He told them it was possible she traveled back east and possible she checked into a sanatorium. Evelyn's friend Marguerite from New York, who she communicated with via letter for, like weekly, she wrote to Scott asking why she hadn't heard from her friend in so long. She had been receiving weekly letters and packages from her for years. Scott wrote back telling her the same story he had told her other friends. She was ill. She was in a sanatorium. And no, she couldn't talk to anyone. He also told her that the reason that Evelyn had been sending Marguerite gifts was because she was mentally ill. And he would appreciate the gifts that she sent her back. What? (laughs) He's going too far. He's like, the only reason she sent you those that jewelry and hats and shit is because she's ill. He's he's really bombing this con. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, he's flying way too close to the sun and being very sloppy. Yeah, considering that this is his only thing that he's ever been skilled at, like kind of conning his way into situations. Yeah, and whatever he's doing here, it's like it's just so suspicious. It's crazy. Like he, it doesn't seem like he really planned this through. No. Um, Marguerite gets this letter basically saying that she didn't mean to send you all those gifts. Yeah. She was mentally ill. And she's like uh, insulted by this and sad. It makes her very sad to hear this. She wrote back expressing her shock and devastation about Evelyn's supposed condition. After she sent the letter, she contacted L.A. District Attorney S. Ernest Roll and mailed him a copy of the letter that Scott had sent to her. Now, Roll had already been in contact with Evelyn's friend Jeanette, who also wanted answers. So this is the second call that the L.A. District Attorney has gotten asking about Evelyn Scott. Roll, though was hesitant about taking this case, and he wouldn't have taken this case on if it weren't for Bill Bronner, who was a respected lawyer and also a friend of the DA's. Right. So he's like, well, now it's serious. Because 
I got connections to other rich people. Because a man, because <laughs> a man who's a respected lawyer contacted me and said, "These broads, these broads are a little hysterical. These, this is how things get done. If you're rich and connected and powerful, <laughs> you can finally get justice." Yes. Um, and they, the friends requested that this investigation into Evelyn's whereabouts be discreet because it was, they didn't want to cause a kerfluffle in the Pasadena society scene. I mean, who cares at this point? Who gives a fuck? (laughs) And on July 28th, Scott met a new woman at a dinner party. We mentioned up top, her name was Harriet and she was also a wealthy widow. But technically, he's still married to his wife who's in a sanitarium or whatever. Yeah. Right? Like he, he's, he's still married to Evelyn. Yeah. Just like uh, hanging out, hanging out at their house. Who's still inviting him to dinner parties at this point? That's crazy. Right? Yeah. yeah. They're like, oh, the guy, with the, the guy with the missing wife. An interesting thing with him is that usually these type of people are sort of charming in yeah. a way that sort of fools people. And he doesn't seem like he even bothers. I think he was really charming with Evelyn and he was probably charming with his first wife. But it seems like at least the men who know business and like stocks and bonds and shit and like money, they saw through his bullshit right away. Or they right. saw they saw through that he was, something was off. But the the friends of the wife, let's say the female friends, yeah. they, they seem like they weren't initially suspicious until he started isolating her or whatever. Right. right? Um, Diane Wagner's book talked about how the men were o- more openly contemptuous towards Scott. And it did take the women friends a while okay. to be suspicious of him. And I think... Uh, yeah, an interesting thing is like that that probably helped him because she could then be like they're just they're being snobs. Yes. Right? Like Yes. Yeah. Um yeah, and that's why the men were openly hostile about him was because they're like this guy is not rich like us. Yeah. He's not he's not a blue blood. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't necessarily about Evelyn's sake that we know. I mean, I'm sure they cared about her their friend. Right. But they but they sniffed out that he wasn't one of them. Yes. Immediately. Which is not necessarily a negative thing. Do you know what I mean? But in like, this case, they figured out quickly that he had a motive with this wealthy wi- right. woman he could take advantage of. Well, because he's pretending to be one of them. He's not just yeah. like some blue-collar worker who's like, fuck you all. Right. <laughs> I love her. Like, or whatever. Right. Yeah, he's trying to be one of them. They're like, how did he get into the Jonathan Club? The Jonathan the jo- I mean, <laughs> the Jonathan, just the name sounds it's really so white. rich. It's, it's like very rich and white. Like yeah. Jonathan, the Jonathan club, <laughs> the Jonathan that still exists, right? Yeah. There's still events there and stuff like the uh, Jonathan I've club. definitely seen things where it's like a swing band or a dinner or like whatever. I don't think it's as exclusive as it used to be. Like I think you can pay to go to things there. Do they let broads in now? Oh, I'm. I'm guessing that they do. I, I I don't know enough about it, but I definitely have heard it and I have seen things there, like a New Year's party or whatever. According to the Hollywood Reporter, 
the initiation fee is $45,000 plus, <gasps> plus monthly fees of $500. Oh my God. Who, what do you wear to the Jonathan Club? Collared shirts. Oh, this, so it, yeah. Is this where, um, I feel like, was this where like um, Erica Jane's husband, I feel like he had, he was a member there. Oh, really? Tom Girardi. Because I feel like that vaguely mem- remembering uh, that he right. that was one of the things he paid for. I don't get what you're paying for. Just to go hang out with people, you spend 45000 a year? Yeah. That to, seems lame as hell. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, these clubs, these clubs have existed for rich people in America for like over a century. And it's just... It's like the Soho house. It's like you go there to take an important client to lunch and be like, look where I'm a member. And to exclude people. Yeah. And look, I'm sure they're not as exclusive as, I mean, it's cost prohibitive to most It's exclusive in that regard. It's exclusive. Like, yeah. I'm sure back in the day they were like only wealthy white wasp men. Yeah. But... Now it's, oh, go for a swim. They have like a luxury pool. I guess they, yeah, they probably have events there. I don't know. Write in if you've been to the Jonathan Club. It's an, yeah. I love, in the olden days, that's what they called it. Athletic Club. An athletic club. Well, then there's the (laughs) Athletic Club downtown too. Oh, is there? Yeah. I mean, downtown is uh, a lot of... A lot of those places. Because downtown is an old part of Los Angeles. Yeah. It doesn't, it's like not the same now, but back when we do these old stories, there's always a lot of action going on downtown. Always. Yeah. I mean, some of our really old stories we've covered were all downtown cases, like the yeah. ones from the turn of the century. Right. Where they're just dri- where they're like downtown and then in, they're driving somewhere else. They're in their yeah. little buggy downtown <laughs> with their horses, clip clop. Um, Someone, one of our listeners sent or posted some stories about a really old apartment building in West Hollywood. And one of the, she was like researching it and she posted these stories and I commented on it, but it was um, where one of the victims of the, um, Harry, what's his name? Henry Glattman? Harry, oh, Harvey Glattman. Harvey Glattman. Yes. That was one of the victims was from that apartment (gasps) building. I think her name was Judy Toll. Um, you researched that case, so I don't remember all the names. Yeah. Um, but I was like, oh my God, and it's abandoned now, but it's oh, a really, really nice old building that's completely like not in use anymore. Really? But could be fixed up. Like, I'm surprised someone hasn't. Well, hopefully they do a good job and not just some gross remodel <laughs> of it. But like, yeah. yeah, it was interesting. And I feel like that's true for a lot of old buildings here. There's like some connection to some weird case or scandal like do you know what i mean like it is cool to sort of see that um anyway we will be back next week with part two there's a lot to get into okay good the investigation and the trial in this case is wild so looking forward to i'm looking forward to, to it we got we had to set it up this week though do we have pictures of these people we do okay good look i will tell you this desi when I saw a picture of this guy, L. Ewing Scott, I was like, how did this guy pull bitches at all? <laughs> He's not hot. Okay. And he doesn't seem very charming to me. I, I mean, maybe to them initially. Yeah. But. I mean, he's, an, he's a world-class asshole, this guy. Wow. Okay. Anyway, bye. Bye.